1 Corinthians chapter 1 is where we're turning in this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 teaches us about pride and what should, we be, should, what should we be proud of and not ourselves. You know, pride is at the root of so much sin in our lives and conflict one with another, one toward another. And it is something that God himself does not countenance. He does not accept it. He is very jealous in a good sense, righteously, for his own glory, for his own importance in regard to his creation, in regard to anything outside of him, which is everything else. There is God and there's everything else. And so he is the one who is rightfully proud, but he's not arrogant. He's not condescending. He is the one who became a servant for us. Christ himself became a servant for us. But when we see pride in ourselves, in the way that we think about ourselves, the way that we relate to one another, the way that we think about other people being less than ourselves, it is not very attractive. It is not very becoming. And it usually again, tends toward breaking of relationship. It usually tends toward the dissolving of, of uh, you know, even long-standing um, affinity or, or affection one to another. When there is arrogance, when there is just this, this attitude of, of being more important, more, more better, more, 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 whatever than, than the other person, uh, a sense of comparison, a sense of, you know, I've got it together. What's, what's the problem with you uh, kind of thing? It is not becoming, it's not attractive to uh, each other. It's not certainly acceptable before the Lord. In other words, we have every reason to be humble. It's a command, humble yourselves before the mighty hand of God. He will exalt you at the proper time. God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And that verse at the end of Daniel 4, you remember Nebuchadnezzar, very proud, arrogant fellow, king of kings after all. I mean, if anybody had a, a right to some measure of... Uh, hubris or, or arrogance, it would be Nebuchadnezzar. And yet he said, God is able to humble those who walk in the pride of their hearts. And that's a blessed thing to recognize, wow, I don't have to keep up the show that I'm better than everybody else because we're not. We're not better than everybody else. And we're not better than God. We are his creatures. We're made of dust. I mean, if you ever have vacuumed or, or dusted the floor or, or dusted the floor, dusting the furniture, sweeping the floor, and you get a pile of dust, and you say, that's me. That's me. I'm a pile of dust, animated, made in God's image, but that's what I am in relation to God himself. And so we, just a proper sense of our importance, a proper sense of our value before the Lord. He doesn't need us. And ultimately, we don't need each other. Now, God has given us graciously to one another to encourage one another in this walk of faith, but we need the Lord. We need Christ himself. We need his righteousness. We need his presence in our life. And that is what this text in, uh, at the end of chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians teaches us not to be proud, not to be arrogant, not to be full of ourselves, but to be full of the Lord Jesus Christ himself, to center our lives upon him and recognize I contribute nothing. As the saying goes, what, what do we contribute to our salvation? Just the sin that makes it necessary. That's what I bring. That's my offering. And you think, well, that's not very good. Well, that's what I have, and that is what the Lord has, has taught me. Bring that before the Lord, forsake that sin, and cling to righteousness that comes by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning at verse 26, is where we're going to be. And I didn't put that on the, or did I? I didn't put it on the screen. So you'll have to follow along in your notes or make it up as we go along. But he is, is teaching us here at the end of chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians and the beginning of chapter 2, that the absurdity of the gospel 
is where we ought to celebrate. And in other words, the foolishness of God is on display through both the message of the gospel. We studied that last time, last couple of times. The message of the gospel is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved is the power of God. It's the wisdom of God. In this next section, chapters 1, 26 through 31, he teaches us that the calling of God unto salvation is just for those who have nothing else to offer. They have nothing to boast in in themselves. Their salvation is not based on their identity, their performance, their creativity, whatever. It's based on what God has done in the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. We'll see next time, Lord willing, in chapter 2, uh, first five verses, that when Paul came to preach this gospel to those people who just, they, they can't do it themselves, they need a savior, he says, my deliverance, my preaching of the gospel was not in the rhetorical flourishes and the, the swooping of the hand and all this kind of, it came through the foolishness of the message preached in great weakness and insignificance, and yet it saved you and it brought you to salvation. In other words, the gospel is absurd. It is worthy of ridicule from the world's perspective. But from God's perspective, it is the power of God unto salvation for those who believe. And so that's what we see in these verses of uh, end of chapter 1 and into chapter 2, saying, you guys who are so proud and so and these divisions that occur, you have no reason for that because you have nothing in yourself that the other person doesn't have. In other words, if you're in Christ, you have the same benefits. You have the same identity. You're in Christ. Is that not enough? And you say, well, I'm of Paul, and I'm of Paulus, and I'm of Cephas, and I'm of Christ. That's foolishness. Because what are we? We're servants of the Lord, and you are in Him. And there is no basis for distinction, or one-nutsmanship, or self-glory, or vain conceit. There's no basis for that. Make sure that you humble yourself before the mighty hand of God. Well, beginning again at verse 26 of chapter 1. Let me read the text, and then we'll look at it a little bit more carefully. He says, For consider your calling, brothers, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, and the base things of the world and the despised, God has chosen the things that are not, so that he may abolish the things that are, so that no flesh may boast before God. But by his doing, you're in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. In this text, Paul is doing a little meditation on a text from Jeremiah chapter 9 that we'll look at a little bit. That's, he's quoting it there in verse 31, kind of a, a loose quotation, but not, not as loose as we might think. He, but he, he has this idea of what is our reason for boasting before the Lord? There is no boasting in ourselves. In other words, he says, let him who boasts, Boast not in your strength, boast not in your wisdom, boast not in your, the might that you have or the connections you have or the influence. Boast in God himself, boast in the Lord. And so he says, verse 26, hey guys, remember who you are or who you were anyway. And there, there's some, some measure of this idea. Consider your calling, both the, the calling, not vocation, like, you know, profession, you know, your, what's your calling? You're a plumber or a lawyer or whatever. No, that's not what he's talking about. A calling unto salvation which, by the way, he's mentioned a few different times in this wonderful chapter. Even verse 1, Paul says, I was called as apostle. And in verse 2, uh, called, those Corinthians are called as saints and a couple other times in this first chapter. And he's going to emphasize the call of God, the work of God, the, the sovereign action of God here in this, in this text. But he says, consider your calling. What were you like when God saved you? Brothers. Now, we think of the Corinthian church and we think, man, problems. Corinthians equals problems. And yet, Paul 
consistently, repeatedly calls them brothers, just affirms that affection, affirms the identification he has with them, and he celebrates that. And he, so he says, look, guys, ladies, you who are in Christ, remember where you've come from and who you are even now, because now in Christ, it's not that things have changed and you're on the top of the world, now you're in Christ and everybody loves you. No, you're still basically the same people in terms of the, the world's eyes as you were before Christ, but now you have a new perspective on it and you value that. You value the score and the shame, the persecution that people offer you, uh, offer you, give you, you know, lay on you in Christ because of your identity with him. And you say, that's fine. I'll bear any reproach to have Christ. How much more valuable is Christ than anything I can have in the world? And so he says in verse 26, again, in the context of this suffering, not the suffering, the division that is going on in the church and the anger, the, the, the maybe not come to blows quite yet, fist fighting and so forth, but, but definitely... Uh, a pride or an arrogance that certain people had this and oh they're they're the other people so in the church fine they can be in the church but they need to stay there you know keep their distance over there that's not what he's saying consider your calling consider what you your the circumstances of when you came to faith in the lord jesus christ and he says and he gives three different examples there were not many wise according to the flesh not many mighty not many noble ah well that's not very good is it not many wise wouldn't it be great if if certain wise people could be saved you know certain pe people who as it says here who are um, mighty and noble wouldn't it be great if god would save whatever politician or or uh, celebrity or or this scientist or this professor or this person wouldn't it be great what what could god do with somebody like that the same thing he can do with somebody who's not any of those things in other words the effectiveness or the power of God in the life of somebody is not based on their identity or their connections or their whatever. It's based on God's power in and through us, which ought to, well, humble us. Because what do we have to provide to God? Not much at all, except an obedient, loving heart. And he, he does things with, with that. And he says, look, remember from where you come, have come and even who you are now. Now, you're not wise, again, in the context of wisdom and the Greek culture not so much in the Roman culture, they're more concerned with glory and, and power and that kind of thing, but the, wisdom, the, the Greeks were very concerned with wisdom and knowledge and learning and creativity and intelligence and intellectualism and so forth. And he says, there weren't many of you who were like that. Remember that Corinth was a city, had a, a whole hundreds of years of history before the time of the first century AD, and yet it was largely rebuilt by Julius Caesar. Remember that whole history we, looked, we studied at the beginning of the study? And that it was rebuilt with, uh, repopulated, I should say, with a lot of slaves and freed men, which is to say slaves and, and not so much slaves in the, like we have seen it or even as practiced in our current day, but those who are either, um, they sold themselves into slavery, that's an economic arrangement, uh, they will serve this person for so many years in relation to a freedom of a debt, or, or maybe they're captured in war, maybe they're captured in whatever else, but it's a slavery that is basically, I mean, it's the underpinnings of the whole Roman society. Uh, the, the number of slaves in the Roman Empire was just tremendous, and there's a whole stuff about that. But some, somebody who was freed from slavery through whatever means, whether they purchased their slavery or their master uh, manumitted them, they you know, sent the hand the document. A freed man, woman, uh, is somebody who is a former slave, but not a slave any longer. And you think, well, that's, that's tremendous. Well, not really so much. It was just one grade above dirt in the Roman world, and yet they had that identity. And so 
And then maybe there were some artisans, like Paul was an artisan, Aquila and Priscilla were, were artisans, craftsmen. And then you had the, maybe the wealthy, maybe the folks that paid for, the, the patrons of these people. Anyway, we had a whole collection of these people, but mainly that church in Corinth was made up of those who were not wise, not the part of, of the, the intellectual uh, folks, not the ones who would uh, sit in the, in the meeting houses and talk uh, ideas all day and night. Not many mighty, not those who are influential in the world, not the strength, yes, the physical strength could be, but more and more significantly perhaps the influential, those who are the, the persons to know that, you know, you really want to be connected to this person in order to get kind of, and he says there weren't many, not many in this way. And the third example, not many noble. And that idea really has to do with noble birth or having, you know, uh, good pedigree, um, there was a lady back in the 1700s, I think, who said, I was saved by an M. An M? What was this M thing? Because it says, not many noble. She was a noble lady. She was a lady or a duchess or something. And she says, if that were so, that not any noble, well, that just excludes me, but not many. In other words, even the rich and famous and whatever can come to faith, but they don't have anything that we don't have, uh, the, you know, the, the not wise and not mighty, not noble. In other words, there were not many. So don't, why are you boasting in yourself in that? You don't have any of those credentials. You don't have any of those things to celebrate in yourself. And so what else are you going to do? If you can't boast in yourself, what are you going to do? What, how are you going to do it? Verse 27 says, God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong and the base things, base things of the world and the despised. God has chosen the things that are not that he may abolish the things that are so that no flesh may boast before God. Three different times the exact same phrase is used and that is in the Greek anyway. It has to do with um, something of the world. God has chosen something else. We instead of, or, or excuse me, not something else. He has chosen that thing of the world. In other words, we see an emphasis, and it, again, he's very clear in the text. You see it even here in English. God has chosen. Well, why did God choose? Because there's some inherent value in that. Because you know, God can do something with that block of wood or the the staff that Moses had. Throw that on the ground, and I'll make it into a serpent. You think that's a that's a piece of wood? You're going to make that into a serpent, a real serpent? Put your hand in your cloak and bring it back out, and I'll make it leprous and put it back in. I'll make it. How do you do that, God? How can you, how can you even do that? How can God choose this a bunch of nothings? In fact, that's really how it says at the end of verse uh, 28. He has chosen the things that are not. In other words, the things that have no, the nobodies. They have no value, in, total insignificant in relation to the world, and yet God has chosen those things that he may abolish. And that has the idea of, of to subverting, but hopefully, to totally, excuse me, turning things over. And you think, why does God hate the world so much? He doesn't. He's a God of redemption. But he says, you may not, it says it here in verse 29, you may not boast in yourself before me. Let me just bring you down, not just a notch. Let me bring you down to the cellar, and not even the cell. Let me just totally destroy you so I can rebuild you in my image. You're, you are a lost and ruined sinner. And yet I'm going to choose, again, the foolish things of the world, the weak things of the world, the base things of the world, and the despised. God has chosen those things. Boy, God, can, what? you're not very good. You don't have very good ideas about how to build a kingdom, do you? 
you really want the strong. You want those who have something to offer. You want those who are, uh, you know, noble born, or you want those with a with a, a heritage or an understanding or a vision. And God says, no, I can't use those people. I need people who are empty of themselves, but full of me, full of my righteousness. God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. Wait a minute. God had said, says here in verse 26, not many of the Christians in Corinth were wise. And God has chosen the foolish things, which is to say the foolish people of the Corinthian church, to shame or to put on display uh, the, the judgment of God. So many times this idea of shaming, and notice it's repeated twice in verse 27, to shame the wise, to shame the things which are strong. God has an idea of shaming or has a, a judgment, a condemnation. Not just shaming like, oh, shame on you, you shouldn't have done that, but actually exposing, uh, putting on display for mockery and uh, derision, kind of like, I don't know, like our Lord Jesus Christ who became, I mean, he was shamed on the cross for us. And so that same idea, if, if we do not accept the righteousness that God has wrought or, or purchased in the death of our Lord Jesus Christ, in the shame that he bore, then we're going to bear that shame. Somebody's going to bear that shame. Why don't we find our, our salvation in Christ? Because God will shame, he will bring to naught, he will uh, expose, he will destroy even those that are full of themselves, wise in their own heart or uh, uh, rejoicing in their, their, their strength, their power, their ability, their connections and so forth. God has chosen the weak things, the foolish things, the weak things, and even he kind of compounds some ideas here in verse 28, the base things of the world and the despised, which each of these things, if you look back in verse 26, is a, is a exchange of what he said there, wise, mighty, noble. He says, no, these are the foolish, these are the weak, and these are the base and the, what was the word here, despised, the just uh, looked upon with scorn and derision, those which are uh, just nothing. There's, there's no value. Why do you even look at that? Why? And this is what the world is saying against these people, uh, that they are despised just because they, they, have, they have nothing to contribute to society. And God says, that's who I want. Those who, they have no other recourse but to look to God and find their identity in me, not in themselves, not in their family, but in me alone. God has chosen the base things and the despised, the things that are not, again, the nobodies, the, the things that, are, that have no ultimate value in, in, the, in and of themselves. God has chosen so that he may abolish the things that are. This word abolish is kind of an interesting word. It's not used very often in scripture, uh, different combinations of it, but it has the idea of, of taking it's, yeah, it's not really, uh, well, to abolish something means to take something that is usually useful, it's productive, it, is, uh, it can do work, it can do something, and negating that, so saying it's not useful for that anymore, I've totally uh, ruined it. It, it, there's nothing it can do, and then the beginning, there's kind of a compound uh, em emphasis on that word that says not only can it not work, it's, it's to the nth degree, just totally, totally undone, totally abolished, totally rendered ineffective. Maybe you have the word in that translation or nullified. He will nullify the things that are uh, so that there's nothing, there's nothing it can do anymore. And you think, why does God hate the world so much? Because the world is against God. The world needs to be brought to its knees and it will, thankfully. And not, not just the creation world, like the, the wood and the, and the clay and the gold and all that stuff, but people. More importantly, people need to be brought low 
to honor the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And that's what he's doing in the process of this, choosing not the, the wise and so forth, but choosing the empties, the nobodies uh, for his own glory. Why does he do this? Verse 29 says, so that no flesh may boast before God. So that no flesh may boast before God. And this idea is really an Old Testament idea about flesh. And it's not just you know, flesh like body and, and stuff, but it, it has the idea of mortal man, just humanity. And, and in some regards, when we look at this, these verses, these descriptions, these are the foolish things of the world. And see how that phrase of the world is used uh, all you know, three different times in this verse, these verses, 27 and 28. It has to do with the world's estimation or perspective on these people, the Christians. But especially when we look at verse 29, when God refers to humanity as all flesh, it reminds us of how God responded to Job back in like chapter 38 and 39, 40 and 41 uh, and 42, where Job is just Enraged, he's full of himself, his anger, God has wronged me and all this thing. And God has to put Job in his place and say, you're not God. You, were you there when I laid the you Do you know where this, do you know, can you do this? No, I can't. And so bringing all flesh, mortal man to the end of himself and recognizing the only reason, the only basis for my boasting is not in myself, but in God. So that no flesh, no person, no mortality, more, no creature made in the image of God, yes, but out of dust and subject to the sin of, of Adam, the disobedience that comes by a nature of our, our, our relationship with him. No flesh may boast before God. We'll see this word boast again in verse 31. The idea is finding a reason to celebrate, a, a reason to uh, uh, speak up or, or to, to act out or to to uh, just say things that are just uh, wonderful. And usually it's about myself. Now you can see a lot of different examples, even positive examples about boasting. Paul, in fact, uses it in many times, boasting in the, the church churches that he's, he's planted around the Mediterranean area. Uh, he will boast in them. He, does, he says, I don't boast in myself. I'm not going to boast uh, definitely in myself. I'm going to boast in Christ who gave himself uh, for me, loved me, and so forth. Um, so boasting has a negative connotation and a positive connotation here. It says... No flesh may boast before God. No flesh may be able to just, you know, saunter into God's presence, throw open the gates before the throne room of God and say, here I am, Lord, where's my spot? A Christian will not do that. A Christian will even cower. And you think, how, how can this happen? To, to approach the throne of grace in an arrogant fashion, that's not. That's not going anywhere. No flesh may boast before God. God is bringing all men low so that we can be raised up by him at the proper time, that we would give honor to him. So we're, we're seeing that the Corinthian church has no reason for boasting in themselves, no reason for celebrating their accomplishments, their achievements, their uh, connections, their, their intellect, which is so finite. I mean, it's kind of like, let's go drain the Pacific Ocean with a cup. You bring your cups too. It'll be plenty. Are you foolish? Are you an idiot? I didn't drink all of it. But uh, we, we see that the, the agenda, the thinking, the, the grandiose ideas we have, they're nothing compared to God. We will boast in God, not ourselves. And he says here in verse 30, really celebrating the fact that our salvation is not of ourselves. It is by his doing. And this is, there's some, your, your translation may have something different. 
here in verse 30 uh, that uh, would indicate the idea, hey, this, this is of God. This is something that He has accomplished. It's not from ourselves. It is something that He has purchased for us. It is something that He has accomplished for us. It is a gift. One, uh, one translator has says, it's a gift from Him that you're in Christ. Because of Him, uh, ESV has, because of Him you're in Christ. Uh, in other words, it's not because of you. It's not from you. It's not from your mom or your daddy. It's not from your wealth. It's not from your intellect. It is from God. But, 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 but I thought God, you know, he, he looked down the, the corridors of time and he, he found those who would be faithful to him and those who would have something to offer to the kingdom and he, he would save those kind of people. No. Of God, he chose. He chose not the things that are, would be a human advantage to God's kingdom. He chose the folks that were more of a liability. You think, you know, you, when you choose up teams for soccer ball or, or soccer ball, kickball, whatever the kind of teams we used to do, uh, especially that, that, Dodgeball. That was just it's horrific. That's just murderous. Anyway, but you choose teams because you, you say, that guy's that's a fast person or, 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 or a small person won't get hit. So you, you look for advantage. God doesn't. Because you remember Gideon, Judges 6? Who did, who did God chose Gideon, a rather timid fellow? I mean, he's, he's threshing the grain in a, in a closet, essentially. And he, what, your mighty man, Gideon, you're going to be my warrior. And go and get an army of 300 people. No, you have too many people. Send those people 300. In other words, God doesn't need. God doesn't need. He is sufficient in himself. He doesn't need anything, but he uses people. And so here in verse 30, by his doing, it's his glorious sovereign will accomplishing these things. It is of God, not of our wisdom, not of our strength, not of our noble birth. Of God, this comes. And it says, of, of God, you are in Christ. You have this relationship. This is a word, 1 Corinthians is one of Paul's earliest letters, and this phrase, in Christ, in Christ Jesus, is a foundational reality of Paul's theology as he develops it throughout his letters. And it is simple in some regards, and yet it is a vast topic to consider. What does it mean to be in Christ? It has uh, ideas of, of relationship, definitely a devotion we have to Christ. It has the idea of our life is, is not just connected with Christ, but is in Christ. We have, our life is, is, is uh, totally uh, taken over by Christ. And we think, I wish it'd be taken over more because there's so much that I do that I don't want to do that's a, a, an offense to Christ. And yet, we have a relationship with him. He is the, the one in whom we live and move and have our being, right? As Paul said elsewhere. And so he's, he's identifying this relationship we have in Christ. And he says, it's not because you're so great. It's not because you have something to offer. It's because God is sovereign in his will and his work. It is by his doing you're in Christ. And notice it says this, and this isn't so much, I don't believe, a, a statement of Christology in the sense of like Colossians 1, uh, the, he is the image of the invisible God, firstborn of all creation, and so forth. This isn't really talking about who Christ is. Rather, it is defining or, or demonstrating or rather saying Jesus is the demonstration of God's wisdom. Who became to us wisdom from God? In other words, God put his own wisdom. It's not the wisdom of the world because the wisdom of the world does not celebrate the wisdom of God. But this is God's wisdom. This is God, again, flipping everything on its head so that people would not have any reason for boasting in themselves, only in what Christ has done. Getting over the, verse 23, the stumbling block, the foolishness that the Jews and the Greeks regard the cross, Christ became wisdom for us. The wisdom of God, wisdom from God. And so 
Paul says, we look to Christ. We have no reason in ourselves to boast, to find a, a, a confidence to stand on the day of judgment, only in Christ, what is, is, our, is our hope and our sure life. And so he, he describes this, Christ has become to us wisdom from God in his crucifixion, because that's what he just celebrated there. We preach Christ crucified, verse 23. And so recognizing that is the wisdom of God on display, proven in time, and God has, has wrought these things to, to undo, to abolish, to destroy, to set aside the wisdom of the wise and the, the understanding of the understanding and all this kind of thing. And these next three verses, next three words rather, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, are three different words that, that kind of look at salvation from a little bit different perspective. In other words, we don't want to you know, make a, a, a clear and sharp distinction between oh, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Yeah, there are different aspects of the one salvation that God provides. It's not even in a consecutive fashion that we have righteousness and sanctification and redemption, although there could be a little bit of that in the sense of justification by grace through faith, progressive sanctification in this age right now, and redemption, which often has an eschatological perspective, which is to say, we will be redeemed in that day. We're forgiven of our sins. There's that, that freedom or loosing from sin, but also that redemption that we look forward to when Christ comes. So there, there might be some aspect of a chronological progression of, of uh, salvation here or different aspects of it. But he's just celebrating the fact that our righteousness does not come of ourselves. The way that we have an acceptance before God is not based on our own performance or identity. We're sanctified from God, by God, through Christ. We have a redemption, uh, a freedom from sin, a freedom from the slavery of sin, a free, uh, the, the forgiveness of sin even. The redemption really focuses on that, the forgiveness of sin. And so we have that from Christ, not in ourselves. Christ himself is the wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. So that, verse 31, this is why, again, we already saw that in verse 29, this idea of boasting, so that just as it is written, let him who boast, boasts, boast in the Lord. And so if we're going to exult, if we're going to have an identity, a celebration of life and, and joy and, and confidence in anything, it's going to be in the Lord. Now, I mentioned that this whole text of, of 26 through 31 is really a meditation, I suppose, on what Jeremiah wrote in Jeremiah 9, verses 23 and 24. It also, and I'll let you look at that another time. Also has reference to, uh, remember Hannah and um, Elkanah, the, the, the lady back in 1 Samuel chapter 1 and 2 that... that Samuel was born to the first prophet and getting people out of the judges, period of the judges and the period of the kings. And yet Hannah was without child. And so she prayed and God said, you're going to bear a son. And she had a song. We don't call it a Magnificat. That's a word from Luke chapter one, Mary's songs, very similar. But even Mary references or reflects or meditates upon a lot of what Hannah said in, in 1 Samuel chapter two, her song to the Lord. It has to do with this idea of subverting God, doing things that are unexpected. He is taking the wise and he is exalting the foolish or the simple. Uh, and God is, is, is taking the rich and, and bringing them low and raising up the, the poor. Mary says a very similar thing. And even Jeremiah chapter 9 celebrates a very similar thing as well. But Paul redirects or, or focuses this whole thing. Even Jeremiah's text, he says, let not a wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might, let not a rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I'm Yahweh who shows loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth, for I delight in these things, declares Yahweh. 
what I, that's from Daniel, excuse me, Jeremiah chapter 9. The idea there is Christ himself is that Lord. If you're going to boast anything, boast that you know, understand and know me, that I'm Yahweh. Here, Paul says, let him who boasts boast in the Lord. From Jeremiah chapter 9, it is Yahweh. From 1 Corinthians 1, he's talking about the Lord, which usually when Paul uses that term, he's talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. He will talk about God, God the Father, and so forth. But here he's focusing on the Lord. My point of, of emphasizing that is Paul is using a, a, a clear statement about Yahweh and applying it to Jesus. Let him who boasts, boast in Jesus. Wait a minute, just boast in the Lord, right? Yes, yes, Jesus is the Lord. Jesus is God. And let him who boasts, you're going to boast in something, make sure you boast in him. This idea of boasting is throughout the scripture as we wrap up for this morning. First Chronicles 16 and verse 10 says, Boast in his holy name. Let the heart of those who seek Yahweh be glad. Psalm 34 and verse 2 says, My soul make its boast in Yahweh. The humble will hear it and rejoice. Now the question comes as we, as we conclude here, why is God so concerned about receiving glory? Why is he so jealous about this stuff? Can't he just share his glory a little bit? Well, he says, Isaiah 42 and verse 8 I'm Yahweh, that's my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. He is a jealous God. He's a consuming fire, Hebrews 12 teaches us. He says, my glory I will not give to another, Isaiah 48 and verse 11. And so we see that God is very jealous. Remember, even the first four commandments are about the glory that God deserves. He does not share with anybody else. So as we start to think about our own lives, we think, hmm, I kind of have reason to be a little bit cocky, a little bit sure of myself. Don't go there. Don't start thinking more important, more, more about yourself than you ought to think. Think about yourselves rightly. This is the whole idea of Romans 12 and verse 3 or Philippians chapter 3. Do not think too much of yourself. Lay down your life, as our Lord Jesus did, serve other people in love. Again, one of the key verses that gives meaning to our name, Liberty Bible Church, is Galatians 5.13, which says you've been called to freedom or liberty, same there may be some differences there, but freedom, liberty, you've been called to that. But do not use that as an opportunity for the flesh, both the pride of, of life or the thinking that we got things under control, saved by the Spirit, but now we're being perfected by the flesh. No, do not use it for an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, serve one another. Through love, serve one another. Thinking less about ourselves, more about how can we be useful to other people, less about myself, more about what Christ has done in my life. You know how much that destroys or, or just disintegrates, just dissolves. That's, I guess, the word I'm hunting for. Division in the church. If we think of other people as more important than ourselves, then we're going to listen. We're going to go out of our way to establish them, to encourage them, to build them up. I will take a lesser place so that other people can be advanced. Uh, people have a concern about this. Well, I'm going to share that concern. We're going to bring it to Scripture. We're going to evaluate it and think about it carefully. But how much of discord in a, in a tight relationship like we have in the church be... Um, eradicated, the discord eradicated if we walk in humility, if we're boasting, not in ourselves, but only in the Lord who provided the salvation, not because we're just so wonderful, but because we are needy, we are insignificant uh, sinners, but recipients of God's grace. And that helps us too as we relate to other people who, you know, why are those sinners acting like sinners? Because there's sinners, I didn't, you, there's logic maybe in your expression. Uh, why are goats acting like goats? Well, it's, un, it's not surprising. 
But are sheep acting like sheep? Are lambs, are those who are devoted to Christ, are they acting that way? Are they walking in humility? Are they boasting only in what Christ has done, celebrating Him, rejoicing in Him, having the thoughts of God totally taking over our lives so that we would live in a manner, manner pleasing to the Lord and bearing fruit for Him, again, in a lost and dying generation. It is a mess out there. But Paul has... has he could approach this idea of division and discord in the church any number of ways. And he says, let me just bring you back to the cross. Christ saved you. You don't deserve it. You didn't deserve it. Be thankful and receive one another in love and encourage one another. Paul, our Father in heaven, we're so grateful for your faithfulness, your kindness to us. Thank you for your, for your gospel, which is life-changing. It is humbling to us, yes, but it is life-changing. It's the power of God and salvation. We pray that we would... Be very humble before you, and not in a false humility and, and you know, just foolishness, but a, a true, genuine penitence before you, trembling before you, recognizing we have nothing to offer you, but you are the one who fills us with every good thing. You give us every good thing so that we'd be thankful, and of course that we would use it for the building up of the church. We pray that you would teach us in these regards and use us for your glory. It's amazing that you would and do use insignificant people, people who, I mean, we are foolish. We are, we go the wrong direction a lot of times, and yet you are the God who prevails. You are the God of wisdom. You're the God of sovereignty, and you use all manner of things to accomplish your purposes. Please help us to be willing, humble uh, servants of you, and that you would establish your rule and reign in our hearts, in this church, and eventually in the whole world, that every knee would bow and every tongue confess Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We pray for that day to come soon. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.